Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, USA. And as always, I'm joined by my very good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello there, Glenn. Hello, Seb. Hello, everybody. Yes. Hello, everyone. Uh, we have a, a, a wonderful episode to share with you today. Uh, we just finished talking with Robin Walzer, who is somebody who specializes in acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. And uh, so we, you know, it was one of those episodes that was a bit of a departure from a real deep dive into MI specifically where uh, we took the time today to explore a different approach, but we've had a lot of feedback and, and requests over the, over the time of doing the podcast for people, for, for us to uh, explore the, the similarities and um, overlap between MI and ACT. So we will, uh, we will share the, the episode shortly, but um, Glenn, what were a couple of the takeaways uh, for you that, that really stuck out, stood out? I guess I suppose what was really important was the fact that you've done training and act, and it's 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 very new for me. So I was I was very curious. I'd done some reading in advance of the episode, but what struck me in talking with Robin was the similarity in what might be described as the spirit of both motivational viewing and act. And I, I guess that goes back to maybe even what uh, Terry and Bill were talking about in their episode, which is the nature of the practitioner. And what is is that? What is what makes most difference happen is the person's own belief in in their, what they're doing. But also, as we've been doing in recent episodes, we've been inviting our guests to uh, explore the possibility of doing a role play. And in today's episode, we did a real play. I actually before we went on air, we talked about uh, what what Robin would be looking for in a client, and she says just somebody. Who's maybe you know if it's going to be useful, bring a something that has a bit of anxiety about it. And immediately, as when I heard that word, and I knew that I was going to be the volunteer today, it took me to a place uh, in my own childhood, and that, and while we were recording the episode, this part of me knew <laughs> that this that this was going to be talked about, and it just there was a there was a point where I raised that with Robin in the conversation, and we. She she led me through a conversation where she used ACT with this presenting anxiety. And uh, it was a very, very powerful experience for me because what was interesting was I was able to, part of me was watching what was happening while also experiencing it. And it was profound. And there's a few points in it where I teared up. I could very easily cried. Uh, because of just how kind and understanding and supportive Robin was towards the part of me that was struggling. And then the final thing that that really struck me about uh, my conversation, our conversation with Robin, was just how authentic she is in her relationship with the, with the theory and the material that is act and her loving presence and just her way of being with this material and how she holds herself and how she uh, how she communicates and how she talks and how she endeavors to be with with individuals and and uh, it's so evident during the episode yeah um act is something for me that uh i i don't have as much experience in as am i but i i when when someone asks me you know what kind of work do you do or you know you know what kind of practitioner are you 
the way I answer it is I say I'm a, a blend between an MI practitioner and an ACT practitioner. And uh, it is a way that I self-identify. And I've, I've had a couple of trainings over the years and read a couple of the books and, and have really, uh, it's really stuck with me. And it's been quite, uh, quite impactful to, uh, on me personally and also uh, in my professional work. And some of the things that stood out to me were, were similar to yours, actually, Glenn. The idea of the spirit of MI, there isn't like in a formal spirit of act, but early in the episode or in, in our conversation with Robin, she talks about the way an act practitioner thinks about a person and also thinks about their thoughts and feelings. Because very often when someone goes into uh, therapy, uh, as a context that we explored mainly today, uh, people are often going into that wanting to get rid of the way they think, the way they feel, to feel more of this, less of that. And um, Robin's um, Robin described ACT as, as like the starting point of ACT is being very accepting of, of the whole person and not thinking of some of people as bad or damaged and not thinking of their thoughts and feelings necessarily as, as bad or wrong or even negative uh, and using these kinds of judgmental words to describe the inner experiences of, of human beings. And so I think those of you who are familiar with MI will definitely resonate with that part of act. And then, you know, the, the, the real play that you did, Glenn, when I want to thank you again for volunteering to do that. That was uh, quite, uh, quite an important part of this episode. I was really interested in how directive Robin was. And, and I was kind of spoke a bit about MI historically has been called this directive and client centered approach. And I, I was just really interested in how Robin in a really gentle, kind, compassionate way had a place in mind where she was going and she took you there Hmm. again with, with permission Mm -hmm. and with all kinds of support and nurturance, but she took you there Hmm. and it was just, it was just great to see her demonstrate that. Yeah. There was something very kind. It's without translating this into something else. It's, it's understanding from a, from a Rogerian perspective. She, she knew where the growth would take place. So she was guiding, leading, directing me to that place. She was asking questions on purpose to lead to this place where the growth would take place because she knows where growth happens. So that's that's going to be very interesting for people, hopefully for them to experience not just the, the wider conversation, but also the real play and, and, the, and the debrief that follows that. So we hope you enjoy the, the episode. Just to remind people, if you want to stay in touch with us, you can follow us on Twitter at Change Talking. Instagram is Talking to Change podcast. Our Facebook is Talking to Change. And for suggestions, questions, or information on training, it's podcast at glennhines.com. Very well. We'll hope you enjoy the episode, everyone. Robin, welcome to the podcast. We're really, really happy for you to uh, to join us. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me. So we like to get started uh, in a similar way as with all our guests to hear a little bit about who you are and what you do. And, uh, and in, in this context, we, we would like to hear your early act story, but certainly if you have an early MI story, we'd love for you to, uh, to share that as well. Fantastic. So I'll start with my early act story, which is acceptance and commitment therapy and how I got engaged in that. I uh, went to graduate school um, in the 
90s. So <laughs> I'm not, you know, somewhere around there. And I had not met Steve Hayes, who is the developer of acceptance and commitment therapy until that point. And when I was a graduate student, he would hold act workshops for his, for the incoming students each year. And I went, attended the workshop, just not really knowing much about him or act. And I was blown away. Like I had an experience during that first workshop where the way I thought about things was turned upside down. The way I sort of was approaching my relationship with my thoughts and feelings and sensations really took a 180 degree turn. And it just felt like it landed right where it needed to in terms of resonating with me. And it changed the course of my career. I was planning to um, work in a different lab at that time and started going to Steve's lab and ended up staying in that lab and uh, getting uh, expertise in acceptance and commitment therapy and have essentially followed that path ever since. I would say that the key moment in that experience was when he shared with us a notion called selfish context, which is that you are more than your thoughts, feelings, and sensations. You are a, a transcendent being who can observe and watch these as they flow through you. And it just was so freeing to recognize that experience and see that you didn't have to stay stuck in old anxieties or fears or, you know, thoughts that your mind has been giving you for ages about who you are, what's important, and uh, just sort of leapt into the act world from there and have never looked back. And then with MI, uh, with um, uh, I started looking at MI even before that. I had been doing some uh, work in that area and had had some early trainings uh, in my undergraduate school because there were folks there who were looking at treating substance use in veterans. And I was uh, one of the... Um, therapists. I mean, if you can call it a therapist at that age, I was probably like 18, right? But we had to go in and do a little script that we would read with the, with the veterans and, and they would look at the responses and the outcome that was MI uh, based and um, have sort of just dabbled in that arena from time to time in particular, and working with substance use. And so it's not my main focus, but I certainly have some awareness of it and have spent some time thinking about how it applies in different settings, depending on what I was doing. Mm. There's something something that you're saying that a lot of our guests who, who come from an MI background talk about, which is that they recognize something in motivation and it lit them up. It sounds like that's what happened to you when you met ACT. That I've written down the word here, liberation. It sounds like something was liberated for you. That when you heard Steve Hayes talk about, am I right in saying self, selfless context? Self as context. Self, self as context. And yeah. just that ability to, as you experienced it there, that separation from the f- thoughts and feelings that you had and so that you were you were no longer trapped by those ideas that you could then begin to explore them 
And it sounds like that, 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 that just lit you up. And it absolutely lit me up. Fantastic. And as a novice, uh, of, of, learner around act step step has done training in act i haven't i'm very keen to hear and learn about the concepts and principles of act here today and i'm just wondering can you expand a bit more for people like me who are listening who are going so tell us a bit more about this thing called act and what is it that makes it what it is sure uh, so it turns away act turns away from some of the traditional notions that people are broken on the inside and that what they need to do is get their insides fixed. So if you have anxiety, it means you're somehow broken or disordered or problematic and sort of embraces the idea that humans experience all kinds of emotions, thoughts, and sensations, and that we want to change our relationship with them rather than change those things themselves. And so in doing that, uh, taking a more open and aware stance towards your internal experiences, it then liberates you to take action. So you're no longer in a place where you have to be somewhere else before you can do something that's important or values-based to you. A lot of clients, for instance, will come to me uh, as a psychologist and say, help me feel better so that I can live my life well, fix my insides, help me have positive thoughts, help me have more confidence, help me feel good so that I can finally live well. And what we do is work on showing up and being present to those experiences without needing to change them and living well now rather than waiting to live well at some future point. And, uh, because that that point never arrives, by the way, there's always more pain to be had uh, just by being human. But joy, too. There's lots of joy to be had as well. And so ultimately, we're using six core processes. Uh, these are willingness to experience and willingness to make change with whatever you're feeling on board. That's a place that kind of lines up with MI, by the way. And a word called diffusion, where you be fused from thoughts or you get unattached to thoughts that are in your way and blocking you from moving forward. Um, Present moment, being here now, showing up to this place instead of living in the past or the future. Values, which are values, uh, we want to understand what people think is important to them and get their feet pointed in that direction through committed action, which is another one of the processes. And then this last one that I just mentioned and selfish context, which is one that I feel is vitally important, in my opinion, is this sort of sense of being able to observe its consciousness itself being able to observe your experiences and make choices as you step forward and it's all in the service of being psychologically and behaviorally flexible so that you can respond here and now in ways that are workable for what you care about and you bring your emotions along rather than try to change your emotions first does that did that get what you were asking for glenn 
Yeah, and more, and uh, it's definitely and uh, created lots of questions for me that I know that other people listening will be will be interested here. Um, and it, in many ways, it sounds like for a lot of people, they will recognise that it's almost like an invitation for for a mindfulness awareness. And I, I, I don't want to pigeonhole, and I don't want to, I don't want to say anything that diminishes the the, the theory by by giving it another name. But it sounds like that the, a lot of concept of mindfulness is involved in this, and that the individual is invited to step into a, mind, a mindful space and just notice what's there, and then I guess then with the guidance of the practitioner about what it is they they, they go looking for or they go to observe or experience. Yeah, no, you can use mindfulness, and certainly mindfulness can be a part of the work. It's not unusual, for instance, for me to invite clients to do mindfulness exercises or mindfulness practices, meditations. Uh, but it's living more with awareness and it doesn't not, it's not just about the practice of mindfulness, although I think that they are intertwined and feed each other. And so there are essentially mindfulness and awareness practices that you're working on with the client mm-hmm. to help them be in touch with this um, observer self that can see experience and is not the experience seen. Yeah. Just trying to catch these, uh, th- these aspects of act that overlap and connect with MI or perhaps, you know, differ from MI. It would be interesting to, to explore that as they come up too. one thing that really caught my attention early on when you were saying, uh, when you were describing things, uh, Robin was you coming to the work with the client with the idea that a human being isn't broken, even though the client might come to us saying, fix me, help me. I need to change this or that. And that right away seems like an obvious point of overlap and connection between MI and ACT and that, you know, we, in MI, we talk about something called the MI spirit and it's a, it's a way of being with the client that is accepting acceptance is part of the MI, one of the elements of the MI spirit. Um, but it, it really comes from that Rogerian humanistic, uh, you know, perspective that, uh, human beings are healthy and, and just are naturally healthy or have a natural inclination towards being well and healthy. And, um, and, and we, we, we make really careful efforts to, to view people and their struggles from a point of, uh, of, of health or at least striving towards health. And, um, anyway, just, just wondering about that. I've not heard, I guess, so much about from um, in, in the act learning that I've done about some of the like humanistic underpinnings, I guess. And maybe you could speak a bit to that. Sure. I do think that there are some definitely some humanistic flavors uh, in, in the work that we're doing. Um, we hold the individual to be whole and, capable, right? So if I'm sitting across from a client who's working with me, I'm going to assume that they can uh, make change, that they have the ability to respond differently than the way that, than in the way that they're stuck in the moment. And that that does not depend uh, necessarily on how, what they're feeling 
or what their mind tells them. Because sometimes minds will say things like, by the way, I'm, I'm specifically referring to the mind as an entity here, just so mm-hmm. folks know. You're hearing me talk about it as what their mind will tell them. Uh, because when I'm working with somebody from this perspective, I see two um, entities in front of me, them, the human being, and their mind. Uh, and their mind ha- gets taught messages about how they can't and what's wrong with them and, <clears throat> you know, how deep down inside something's not right and they need to get it fixed. Uh, and it becomes a barrier to to being able to make change. And so one of the um, places that we want to work from an ACT perspective is, is that uh, an assumption that the person is not broken because they have these experiences. And in fact, they're quite natural experiences. It's the fight with the experiences that causes the difficulty, the suffering, so to speak. So there's the natural pain uh, that we all have under different kinds of circumstances, family histories that are abusive, <clears throat> you know, engaging in, um, losing a family member or just all of the different things that we bump up against that lead to the human experience of pain, very natural experiences. Yet what we've done with these by sort of falling into the medical model is we've taken these experiences of, of mind, thought and sensation and we've pathologized them. And so uh, you know, you have a disorder. And uh, what we're trying to do is back out of that space and um, stand in relation to the person with a sense of you are a human, feeling a human thing, sensing a human thing, um, having thoughts that you, you're, you've learned and now we want to look at how you're relating to those. And what if we start from this assumption that you're 100% acceptable now as you are and that nothing about you on the inside needs to change. We want behavior change, right? Like mm. we definitely want people to change their behaviors, but they don't have to feel good in order to live well, as I was saying earlier. And so they're not broken we're not, we're not pathologizing people for feeling human feelings. The issue is in their relationship with it. If if you cannot feel what you feel, then you're in a fight with yourself. Mm. And that is a place to stand that's um, got lots of suffering inside of it. Mm. Mm. Did, did I get there, Sebastian? Did I get to? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so again, the concept and the experience of kindness, that, that just the way you're describing that, you as the practitioner are approaching this with that unconditional positive regard, that un- unconditional acceptance of, I know you are struggling and I accept you. And not only that, I accept you in a, in a way that I'm hoping that you can begin to grow into accepting yourself, which is at the end of this process, you're probably going to still have conflict. And you will be at much more peace with the experience of that conflict because it's it's almost like that, as you're describing, but that relationship we have with our own experiential memory. And or and, and very importantly then, it sounds like it's the messages that we 
created for ourselves or we're taught about ourselves in, in the midst of those memories that are then in conflict with the who I want to be or who the, who the, know, the who I am or the who I know I am. And these two, these the who I am and the voice I have about who I am are rubbing against each other. And you're inviting me to go, wow, what's that like for you? Just just been noticing those two voices. And... But uh, noticing those two voices, I think, is part of the process. Um, and you can see where ambivalence can rise out of that, right? Like a voice of change, a voice of no change. That's part of that sort of two-voice process. Uh, but I would even take it uh, another layer up another hierarchy up where you're not just looking at those two voices you're seeing that those two voices are things that are happening mm. as part of your mind arguing with itself or mm. talking to itself and from the act perspective we would say that there's two ways of knowing the world or at least two ways and one way is to know it with your mind all of the things that you've learned across time, you know, the sort of math problem, you know, uh, uh, sorter, categorizer, understander of the world and the way that we've described it and taught it to you. Uh, and then there's another way of knowing, which people forget about quite easily. And that's the ex one, especially once they get their mind moving out and you know, they're living in their head for like 95% of the time, or I would probably say more. 99.9 uh, .9 is probably a more accurate number than 95. We also uh, learn through experience. We learn the world experientially. For instance, uh, this is a very straightforward example of what I mean. And um, uh, Sebastian may have heard other folks talk about this or me even talk about it, uh, that Learning to walk is not a mindy thing. Like most um, babies learn to walk through encountering the world, right? And through nonverbal help with parents where they're holding their fingers and uh, their legs are kind of bouncing up and down and touching the floor. And they're, uh, you know, starting that process very nonverbally, yet you know, like you wouldn't go up to a baby and say, this is how you walk. You put one foot in front of the other and you tell your mind to tell your muscles like it wouldn't look like that. And so we learn many things in life that way. And it doesn't stop once we've um, got a mind on board and we're thinking. It's just that we lose touch with it because we spend all of our time in our mind once we sort of get that fluidly moving. Uh, when we really are verbally taking off in the world and we can interact with the world from the position of mind instead of the position of experience. Because if you look at experience and you pay attention, what you'll find is that no emotion or sensation lasts for very long. Yet your mind will say things like, it's going on forever, I can't take it. Or your mind will say things like, I can't stand this anymore, a feeling or sensation, when in the moment that your mind is saying it, you're actually standing it. So the two are, are not linked up. And part of what we're doing is helping people uh, connect to 
their experiential way of knowing the world, that emotions rise and fall, and that anything that comes from the mind is to be observed, including knowing yourself as, as two parts of you or three parts of you or how many of our parts you want to you talk about. There's so many directions where I, I'd like to go, I, so it's hard to choose. But I, I think it'd be great for people who are listening to this who, again, this might be the first time they've ever heard anything about ACT or, or um, is to, to try to, I guess, capture then because inviting someone to do what an ACT pr- uh, practitioner invites the client to do is, is quite counterintuitive to what seems like we should do, which is to change our thoughts, get rid of this pain, this fear, this memory, and, you know, I, I don't know that I've ever had a client without any sort of act uh, background or anything. I, I don't know that I've ever had a client say, you know what, I, I'd like for you to help me accept my pain, help me change my rel-. No one has ever asked me that. They're always asking me to get rid of stuff. And so I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about how uh, how you help people change that perspective and, and come to, I guess, embrace this rather different, um, you know, trajectory that, that they, they certainly weren't coming in to see you from that point of view, most likely. Right. No, they come in saying, help me not think this anymore. Help me not think this anymore. What's wrong with me that I have these thoughts and feelings. What disorder do I have? You know, there's, they come in just like you're describing. And our world is filled with these kinds of messages that in order to be happy, what you need to do is not have thoughts that we label as negative. And I'm saying that that way specifically, too, is, you know, if I were sort of in charge of the universe, I wouldn't say that we have negative and positive thoughts and feelings. I would just say we have thoughts and feelings. It's our mind that labels them as negative or positive. And then we start relating to those that are negative as if it means something about us, that it means that we don't have ourselves under control, where we don't have good self-esteem, we don't have confidence, we don't, right? And you, you walk into, you know, any self-help section of a bookstore and you'll see books on how to improve your self-esteem, you know, how to grow your self-confidence, how to be the you you've always wanted to be, right? Where it's like... What you need to do is feel good and feel good is out there as a title, right? Like the message is powerful and we've learned it in all kinds of ways through our social interactions. And we've learned it through even our parental, our small, you know, family interactions. You'll have parents who say things like, you know, don't cry about that, or you have no reason to cry, or, you know, like they'll sort of give messages that are about how not to feel what the so-called negative things in order to be okay. Uh, and it just sort of, what what happens is, is that people don't recognize the inherent paradox that's built into this system. If you're trying not to have a thought, you have to contact the thought in order to know that you don't want the thought. 
otherwise, how do you know that you don't want it? You have to think the thought in order to know you don't want the thought. So if you're thinking the thought, there's something really wrong with me and I want to get rid of that thought, then you've just had the thought. Oh, and like, if you're trying to memorize something, what do you do to memorize it? You repeat it. (laughs) Right. And so you repeat it lots of times. And so then if you come across somebody who says, I don't want to think this anymore, they've probably repeated it thousands and thousands of times. And the likelihood that it's going to go away is zero. It's zero. The thought's still going to be there. Mm. So we can add, we can add to thinking, you know, we can change thinking through addition, not through subtraction. But people want subtraction because Mm. they've got this, if I'm going to feel good, I need to have a a better self-esteem. And let's use self-esteem as an example. So if a client comes to me saying, I want a better self-esteem, I sort of explore with them. What does that mean? What do you mean a better self-esteem? And it's often, I feel better about myself. I have good thoughts about me. I'm more empowered to do things. And I'll sort of, how many times have you tried to feel good about yourself and what are all your efforts that you've done and quite often their list of things that they've done to try to have a good self-esteem is quite extensive and yet the good self-esteem never arrives or it only arrives momentarily and disappears again so how do you walk around feeling good about yourself and what i want to do is like have them relook at this and what if the deal here isn't to have a feel good about yourself and think positive thoughts but to hold yourself in an esteemed way mm. like there's a behavioral thing that you do and if you were holding yourself that way what would you be doing in your life well no matter what's showing up on the inside And then I'll talk about notice all the messages that you've been given across your lifetime. Like it's not a client's fault that they're thinking this way and coming to me saying, please remove this stuff. We have a a social world built on it. We have a medical model built on it. Like if you look at medicine, the goal is get rid of the cancer, get rid of the cut, get rid of the bacteria. It's all about eliminating the problem. And so we live inside that, unfortunately, I think, in psychology. And so people show up with the same idea, get rid of the problem. Mm-hmm. And emotions and thoughts are then to be gotten rid of. And I I guess um, I'm not going to remember the name of this person who originally said this, but your experiences are sunsets, not math problems. And I want to help people come into that experiential space and stop treating themselves like a math problem, something to be solved. Um, And so there's a lot of work there, uh, Sebastian, around helping them see the system that got them stuck. Mm. We'll use a technique called creative hopelessness. And uh, I should probably just describe that just a tiny bit. Um, It is, we share with the, client the hopelessness of trying to be somebody other than who you are with your learning history in all the contexts that you live in and that once you have a thought on board you have it on board and so 
maybe we can change your relationship and you can see it as a thought rather than as something you have to eliminate that that liberates as glenn was saying that liberates and then we call that the control agenda we're going to let go of the control agenda that's the hopeless part we're hopeless that control applied inside the skin is going to be effective in any long-term way and we want to move into a creative place where you can open up to experience and values-based living versus um, elimination in order to live. That's a creative place. And the agenda is about control being the way you're going to live well as it, as you apply it to emotion, thought, and sensation, and instead be in control of your life instead of in control of what you feel. If that, does that make sense? Mm. It's a little bit of a long answer to what you were asking, but uh, I just wanted to check. What's coming up for me is how my mind is making sense of this right now, Robin. Is it's it's like it's raining today. Now, do I take that personally? In which case, I'm having a bad day, and that can be my own experience of myself. I'm there's a my world is raining inside. Um, it sounds like what you're doing is exploring. So, what are my choices given the fact that it's raining? Do I get annoyed because I don't want it to be raining and that's why there's conflict? Or else, what, what can I do in response to the fact that it's raining today that, I, that I'm feeling this way about myself or I'm having these thoughts about myself? Or as you're describing it, recognizing these are, these are thoughts that my mind is having. And what's it like for me to watch my mind having these thoughts? Do I get on board and get all caught up in these memorials of of other people's ideas of who I am? Or do I go, oh, it's look at at what my mind's doing or not, as the case may be. But it sounds like it's just going, okay, I can see my mind's at it today. I'll just get, I'll go and do some things that I enjoy and see if my mind can come on board. Um, so it's, it's, it's so much about the relationship as, as in motivation, the relationship, we talk about the importance of the relationship between the client and the practitioner. It sounds like one of the things you're working with is the relationship I have with myself or myself and, uh, and how that the additional, even though you said this is, we're not a maths problem. What's interesting is that the idea that it's, that we're adding to that sense of self or we're adding a new self, which is this more understanding, compassionate, insightful self that goes, oh, this is the mind talking now, you know. Uh, ah, this is this. And how do I respond to it? And again, it just, it just feels like a, 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 the integration of, of experiencing someone like you who's, who's containing and kind and understanding and loving that the opportunity is, is and I, that, that I can introduce that sense of self in me that I then have this internal you that is when, when these conflicts arise, the, the voice that arises next is, Hey, that's interesting. I wonder why this is happening. Rather than going quick, shut it down or don't let anybody hear you say that. Or so you're, you're a very kind. If we go back to a parental role, you're a very kind, accepting, loving, understanding voice inside the self that removes the criticism or sits alongside of the criticism. It's not removing, it sits alongside of the criticism. And, um, wow, it, it, it's, I'm, it's, I'm 
genuinely enthused by what it is you said because again for me there's so much of what you're describing I can recognise in my experience of motivational interviewing the the spirit of MI the understanding of language the 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 role of the practitioner in the support of the client become who they already are rather than who they're supposed to be and that for that for the for the practitioner to believe in this other person in advance of them learning to believe in themselves. And I, 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 I wonder, can you, can you ex- talk a little bit more about maybe your, your experience of working with people, what sort of things that, if you give us a few examples of how you use these techniques with specifics to what people are presenting with, if that would be okay. Sure. Um, one of the things that I hear you speaking to is, I think one of the more fundamental ways in which we uh, work with clients and see the relationship between therapist and client as, as the vehicle for change, Uh, because otherwise they wouldn't encounter these different processes that we're talking about inside of acceptance and commitment therapy. And an argument that I would make is that you have to model openness and awareness and compassion presence to your own experiences uh, as a way of helping the client contact and understand what that means for them as well. And so there's a reciprocal process that's happening in the therapy session where I'm not afraid of their emotional experiences. I'm not going to ask their emotional experiences to change. They can have very big uh, uh, emotional experiences. You know, I work with trauma most of the time. That's my key area of focus. And I get folks in my office who have had horrible events happen to them and all of it is welcome. There's nothing that I can't hold as a therapist standing in relationship to them, sharing something painful and often quite dark and awful with me. And that through all of that, I'm going to convey a sense of warmth and compassion and presence that, um, I'm not going to step away from their pain and and I'm not going to step away from my own pain. Right. I'm going to do both things inside of that work um, to both model and convey what it is that I want people to take away. And that I think will be helpful for them as they're working on their own growth and resilience and change. Uh, So, um, I think the relationship is vitally important and uh, we have to be uh, standing in a place where we're um, embracing that kind of warmth and kindness. Now it's not a rule, right? Like this is a way of sort of entering into the process. I uh, uh, Rules unfortunately can be rigidly clung to and actually create part of the problem. It has to be like this. Um, this is more of a, a river flowing, right? This is a fluid kind of process. And sometimes people will get into the room and think that they can't ever be firm. Uh, Now I'm not saying, you know, hard confrontation, that's not it, but compassion without consequences is not compassion in my opinion. And so I want to have compassion, but it also means that I'm not going to, um, 
reinforce things in the client's behavior or or not not engage in uh, an intervention because I'm fearful of how the client might respond. And in fact, they might begin to shape me in ways where I kind of shut down if I follow that process. And I don't know if you'd like me to give an example of what I mean by compassion. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Without consequences. So if you think about, let's imagine that somebody is um, engaging in behavior that's harmful to other people. And uh, they then, and people are aware of it, and they then come forward and apologize and say, I'm really sorry that I did that. And everybody says, oh, it's okay. We have a lot of compassion for you. And we, we're so sorry that that happened and we're all good to go. And then they do it again. And then they, and it, some people are harmed and then they come forward and say, it's my fault. I did this thing. I'm, I'm someone who, you know, uh, struggles. And so when I struggle, I act in this way. And then people come forward and say, oh, you're forgiven. We've got it. We're with you. We have compassion for you. You're amazing that you were vulnerable and you apologize. And on and on it goes. What I would say is what's happening there is there's no behavior change in the person who's continuing to do the harm. So even though everyone is being compassionate towards him, the compassion isn't changing the behavior. Mm. And so I would say that is not compassion because the harm is continuing Mm. for them and the people that they're encountering. Mm. And so consequences for that behavior, Maybe that behavior needs to be, uh, I'll use this word, sanctioned in some way Mm. so that they're less likely to do it in the future. And that's the more compassionate thing. So that might be a firm response in psychotherapy that says that's not going to work. Instead of I understand what you feel and I can stand with you, you might just say that's not going to work. It's not going to be the way that we move forward here. Mm. I mean, I'm giving a small example, Mm. right? But. It has that quality to it, if you catch my meaning. Yeah, there's a, there's a real canon boundary to what it is you're describing. That, that you, again, what's important is the, the way you reflect that the reason why you're holding this person to account is not just for the person that's been harmed, it's for them too, that, yes. that you care enough about them, that you don't want them to keep doing that. And yes. that just by saying you're forgiven isn't, isn't helping them. So you're, you're not, at that point, you're not being helpful. Correct. Correct. Is that I'm helping them as well by, and I say, I say that is compassion, Mm. right? When you can stand firm that that is a form of compassion. Yeah. And it, it makes me think some of, of one of the things that um, can be challenging for people learning about MI is, is I think within the, the notion of acceptance that people sometimes struggle with the idea that you know, am I just supposed to accept that someone uses drugs or um, has unprotective sex if they are HIV positive or whatever it might be? And it, it's it we, we get into a, a distinction between acceptance and approval or acceptance and endorsement. And, you know, what we're saying is an acceptance that that, yes, actually, human beings can leave our office and choose to do all kinds of things that we would we may not agree with, or we would hope that they would do differently or whatever it might be. But, um, but that's not the same as approving that they 
and and I would say that that's not even our role anyway to to approve of someone's uh, choices. But so this this kind of fits with that a little bit for me, which is um, we can be compassionate towards people and accepting towards people and and strive to have this unconditional positive regard that Rogers talked about. But that doesn't mean that anything goes no matter what. And there are limits and boundaries that we can set for ourselves that we can set within the parameters of the work that we do. I was curious to hear your thoughts, Robin, about um, the role of language, which of course is really important in both MI and ACT, but it, it, there may be some differences in terms of, uh, in terms of the role that language plays. So in MI, for instance, uh, one of the more strategic aspects of, of motivational interviewing is to listen for and or uh, engage with the client in a way that invites what we would call change talk. And, um, you know, expressions of, of, of uh, intention or perhaps just curiosity that the person might have about uh, changing their drinking or smoking or, or, you know, whatever it is that might be, um, getting in their way. And, um, and so there's, there's something that we're attuned to in terms of patient, uh, client language. And in fact, we, we even engage with them in a way to see if we can have more of someone's change talk and, um, and perhaps engage with them a way in, in a way that reduces the so-called sustained talk, which is sort of flip side of that ambivalence. And um, so I, I guess I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about the use of language in MI, maybe, and but also, you know, speak a little bit about the role of language within ACT. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question, because in some ways, uh, when I think about language from an ACT perspective, it's both a, a blessing and a burden, right? Like the... The good part about it is that we're able to just do what we're doing here. We're having a conversation and we're learning from each other and sharing some points of view and and sort of being inside the human connection process. Uh, But the part of language that is really challenging is the part that where we can sort of think about our future and imagine a future that we haven't encountered. And that future could look like this. It's always going to be this way. I'm always going to suffer. Uh, or you sort of stuck in the past. Uh, oh, I see this with trauma survivors, right? Where they're sort of constantly rehashing the past and not accepting it. I don't want my past to help me never think about the trauma that I had before. And to Glenn's point earlier, I'm going to help them, you know, sit inside of the experience of holding that memory without that memory being the reason why they do or don't do something. So there's sort of two sides to languaging. And I want to point to it to some degree in session. Like I'm, I've got to tackle language with language because language is the problem. So it has this kind of funny thing in it where um, I'm going to point to the very thing that creates the problem with the very thing that creates the problem. And so uh, it puts you in kind of a funny place. And it's part of why in this work we do, we use metaphor and experiential exercises a lot to kind of back out of the rules and sort of pitfalls that language can bring with it. 
And we do hope that we see language changing across time. Like you'll hear clients go from language that looks like this. I'm a miserable human being to I'm having the thought that I'm a miserable human being to I'm noticing that I'm having the thought that I'm a miserable human being. Right. So the change in the language is about the core processes and you'll hear them begin to stay, talk more about their values rather than feeling well. And so you'll see a shift in the language, the languaging there as well. Ultimately we want them to see mind as the language maker, right? That's, you know, your, your uh, glands produce hormones and your mind produce thoughts. Uh, uh, and um, they could sort of step transcend it. I was, as I said earlier, sort of see it for what it is. It's very hard because we fall back into the um, river of language over and over and over again. But if you can just pop up out of the river every now and then just enough to see it for what it is, you can uh, make significant changes in your life behaviorally that um, can make a big difference for yourself. Did that get at the language question that you were? Yeah, no, certainly, certainly within, within the bounds of acts. And, um, you know, it, it makes me wonder, and again, this isn't, you know, our, our intention today wasn't to, you know, put MI versus act and, you know, which one is, you know, it's just here are these two things that there's some places of overlap and places that are, that don't overlap. And it seems like it might be one of those places where there is, there is a, a, an appreciable difference in that. I think it would be fair to say that an MI practitioner is striving to create the context where the client makes the argument for change Right. Which is it's a shift in the in the relationship there that would be traditional where the the therapist isn't saying you should do this, you should do that. But that we we are we we um, our attention is focused a bit on the things that the clients is saying about change and about their life. And the idea being that the more that people are saying things like all right, I, I, you know, this is it. I really mean it this time. I, I am going to quit smoking next week or, you know, um, that that's, that's where a lot of the action is in terms of MI and, and with ACT, it, it probably isn't that critical to hear the client say this versus that. It, 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 am I right with, with that kind of distinction? Yeah, that's correct. I I guess a way to say it is that we would elevate the behavioral indicators of change over the thought indicators of change. And so um, I'm going to we're going to, you know, separate the behavior from we want change in behavior, but there doesn't have to be change in thinking or feelings or sensations. And so if a client reports to me and they, and there's and I see things happening in in session that are different in terms of the way they're relating to themselves uh, or they've done something outside the therapy room that indicates that they're stepping forward even if they're reporting like this is terrible <laughs> but that they they engaged in a behavior that was values aligned then we would say okay we see 
we see things unfolding. Not that the language should be ignored in these areas, right? But that um, we would just elevate behavior change over change in, in thinking. I want to see that they're doing things differently. And like, for instance, I'll say things like, you know, if I were a fly on the wall and I could see how things are different, what would I see? And it might be something like if we're, let's take um, smoking uh, and it's just a tiny behavior change that they went to the cigarette pack and they opened it up and they, you know, popped out a cigarette and then they put it back in again for an hour and they waited. I'd be like, okay, we're on the path of behavior change, which might be like similar to talking behavior change that you'd see inside of MI uh, saying the kinds of things that you just said. Yeah, I'm really, I, I'm really thinking about this. Maybe next week I'll wait an hour longer before I smoke a cigarette. So there's, does that distinction make sense? Yeah, an interesting thought for us MI practitioners in, in the way we describe this, what it is we're searching for, that idea of the behavioral indicators over the, the verbal or the linguistic indicators of change and where we're, where we're getting married to. And again, it sounds like from what you're saying is try not to get married to either of these things. Is, is this client changing in a way that's useful for them? That's the piece to be interested in. There's different ways of, of, of identifying it. Are they talking about it? Fantastic. Are they doing it? Fantastic. Uh, and, but it's not one or the other. It's, it's paying attention to both. And in many ways, it's, that's consistent with other thoughts I'm having as I'm, I'm, as I'm listening to, because it sounds like as you're describing act and we're thinking of, of motivation and living, we're both pointing towards the same thing. It's just the description of what it is we're doing is slightly different. Um, that we're, tr- we're encouraging and supporting the wellness of the individual, the flourishing of the individual. It's the other person that we are both interested in. And at how we're, how we understand we help someone get there. There's a lot of crossover, particularly in the relational aspect of it. And then some of the descriptions are slightly different. And again, it, it, it reminds me of, I think it's a bit of Buddhist concept of the, the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. You know, the thing that we're pointing, the description of motivation view or a, 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 a act is not the thing. It's the, it's a description of the thing. What's the thing? And, um, and it, uh, I'm, 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 I'm just that enthusiastic. I'm not quite sure <laughs> which piece of this I want to hold on to. What's it, Rob, to be honest? It's just, there's so many things that are converging for me and so many things that I'm going, I want to find out more about this. And to be honest, part of me is also in, in, in advance of us recording, we had had a conversation where we talked about the possibility of doing a role play. And ever since, I have been conscious there's a part of me has remained anxious about that since we mentioned it. And it's like, and I wonder, can, can we maybe just explore that just sure, from an act absolutely. perspective? Because you mentioned the idea that, you know, if, if I'm going to take on the role play, either as a, as either as a, a role play or as myself, ideally it's something that has a degree of anxiety about it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, even now, just the idea of mentioning it out loud, you know, I can feel, I can, I, I'm experiencing anxiety right now at the pr- right. prospect of this. And what I'm curious about now is, so from an act perspective, 
what do you what 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 do we do with this? Well, so is this then a good time for us to just move into this place? Yes, please. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, let me just quickly say one thing. I think MI and ACT line up very nicely, right? Like what you're saying is they line up nicely. And I think that's right. This. So let's come back to this place where you've been sort of noticing that anxiousness. And... Uh, let me just start with your experience of it. Like what has your mind been saying to you as you've been thinking about doing this role play? I guess when, when I, when I was thinking about it from my own perspective, when you asked me about something that, that would make me anxious, first I, my mind brought me to the idea of when I was young and living in Northern Ireland in the conflict, uh, being from one community in conflict with the other. And when, when I was young, where I lived, we were in a, my family were surrounded by people from the other community and we were not made to feel welcome. And eventually we were made to leave. And the idea of talking about that to you in a recording on the podcast frightened me. It was real and it frightened me. And I guess my mind has been going, you're going to expose yourself here, Glenn. You, you, you know, this is a this is a professional podcast. You can't talk about this stuff to out loud on a podcast. So that's that's what I've been hearing. So a couple of things is first I can just as you start to talk about this, I can feel the pain of it. Like there's an ostracis an ostracization. I'm going to say that wrong, but you know, an excommunication out of your community, out of mm. your community, mm. right? Like you being forced to go somewhere inside of this really painful conflict get out go away you can't be in your home you're uprooted right like so i can hear that pain in there and then i hear another rule that professionals don't do these kinds of things mm -hmm. right and i i could just want us to notice like where did that rule come from again it's got a quality of human beings shouldn't do these yeah. things. Mm. And if you follow it out, it's human beings shouldn't be human with each other in certain contexts. And I get it. Like, mm. you know, you want to, you want to be thoughtful about where you're emotionally present, but in this space, I guess I'd want to welcome that anxiety. Mm. What, what, what's, what's so powerful is that, the way you're the way you're talking to me, the way you're the the part of me that is frightened is hearing you, is actually very moving. The the acceptance that I'm experiencing from you, which is you know, yeah, I get it, and even just the the acknowledgement of of what it was my younger self experienced. Um, that it's a, it's a it's a it's a very physical experience. I'm having a very my my heart is. Sore, my heart is pounding, and now my I'm very conscious of my body. Of I'm very very aware of my body. That just the intensity of this experience, of I guess from what you're describing, that this is the part of me that does not want to be seen or is afraid to be seen. And I'm inviting you to let it be okay to let it be seen. Not as a matter of pain for pain's sake, mm. but as a part of what we're doing here to recognize the pain of what happened in the past mm. 
and to for you and I to be connected to it in a way that isn't about there's something wrong with you for having this. In fact, I don't think that at all. I would say that you are make that it makes full sense to me mm. that this very vulnerable thing brought out in front of the world to hear mm. like heightens that physiological experience. And so what I would do is just like again, have you notice what you're experiencing and maybe neither one of us needs to hide from it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Cause there's, I can, again, it's just that experience of being, um, of hearing this, this younger version of me hearing it's okay. If I get it, you know, what you went through and, and it just, it, it's almost like, you know, there's, I could, I could cry, like definitely could cry hearing that. And, um, it's just, it's more relief, I guess, the acceptance of this happened to you. This, this is true for you. And this is, um, and I can feel myself holding that part of me and in, in the company of you, um, just going, yeah, right enough. Would you be willing to explore this younger part of you just a little bit more? Tears or no tears, either way is okay. Mm. Like there's not a requirement yeah, for that yeah. at all. What's interesting is I hear it's it's I'm I'm witnessing him here not and being invited yeah. to come into this conversation. That, that I want to see if I can invite him in. Yeah, that that he that it's him that's nervous. You know, the adult yeah. me, the adult me is grand. It's 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 this younger self yeah. going. Am I allowed here? You know. Yes. Yes. The answer <laughs> really? is yes. Really. <laughs> Yes. And, and as, as nervous as you might be like, like, let's visit him for a minute. Mm. Like if you go back in your memory and think about what was happening for him Mm. at this very conflictual and vulnerable time, Mm. uh, can you picture him back then? Can you see him in your mind's eye? What's interesting about a lot of, a lot of my, Experience of then, it's a lot of space, a lot of emptiness, a lot of there. There is versions of me I can see then. Um, I would just pick one, right? Just one version, maybe, maybe even a photograph that you can recall well, of there, yourself. There, there, there's, there's, a, there's a nice one I can remember. There's me playing outside, uh, outside the essentially the fam- the boundary of the family home, but outside the wall, and there's a hole in in the next door's wall and it's just a secret magical place that I can put my hand into. So you sort of picture him when in that kind of seeing of this wall, like whatever image Mm. is there for you. Mm. And I'll have you just notice like there's something happening to him that he's not asked for. He didn't want this thing that's unfolding. He's being visited by the world. Now that that is very powerful because I am witnessing this really carefree kid just playing, and then what you described superimposing the truth over his reality, and the two of them coexisting in that moment. That 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 was also the the thing that is difficult is also true when it's not hard when life is when when I'm playing. When he's playing and everything's okay, in the background is this truth. Something that he didn't say, give me this. No. It was, 
visited upon him. Yeah. And it was painful. And anxiety provoking. Mm. And just just again, just you acknowledging that to him was very profound. Um it's it's almost like when it's not happening, I'm not supposed to think about it. And in fact, let's not think about it at all, if at all possible. Uh, yes. Yeah. But one thing I want you to notice is that in this place where you can see that something is visiting him that he didn't ask for mm. and sh- the anxiety that gets created in there. I'm shivering is, right now, whatever's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and this I'm welcome that too, mm. right? Let that that that's okay to be there. It's part of the process of being connected to what's happening. Mm. Is that we need you to see him? Mm. Does that make sense to you well, when yeah. I say that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I understand the idea of seeing him, but you added to that by saying this other thing is going on. When when it's not going on, it's going. It's still going on. And, going on. And that's for, right. And for me to be aware of that, I become conscious of how he thinks or feels about who he was. Because I know that you know, in in, in my own journey, I've looked at this and thought, you know, what messages was I being given because of the, the attacks in the family home and things that were being said to me when I was in the street and um, how a child interpreted that. Um, about himself and did not ask for those things. That's it. Yeah. That's, um, he didn't try to create that. And in fact, can feel the heaviness of it and the pain of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, again, again, just having it, it, I just have this loving adult come alongside of him, go, you didn't ask for this, Glenn. You know, this, this is, this is happening, but you yeah. didn't ask for it. You didn't cause it. You're not responsible for it. And it is real. And it is real. And I believe you. And I and I want to now pull him forward into what it is that you're experiencing today. Mm. This anxiousness that's here. Mm. And I would invite the same you that's offering him love mm. as that youngster. Mm. To do something here today as this person feeling this mm. experience. Because mm. mm. I heard you say this. I sort of put that away. I don't really attend to it. Mm. And I guess I want to blow some life back into it and bring it to life here and now inside of what you're feeling here and now. Mm. And ask what will you do here that you're doing for him there. It's interesting. I've just come. I've just sent this say off air. We I've spent the weekend in Donegal, where when when he was young, when I was young, we we've spent a lot of time in the area that myself and Lisa, my wife, had just got a house, and we were walking on the beach today, and we were just talking about where the tide was. I says I can't remember the tide doing this, and this this was this is where I played and whatever else, and just that sense of you know. I guess potentially the reason why he came to the conversation today was because he was with me. Uh, we were together at the beach today and now I can help. I guess the invitation I'm understanding is to go, you know, that, that feeling of freedom that I was experiencing as the adult 
with and rem- remembering him as a child on the beach, that he he can access that with me now. That yes, it's true that what happened to us when when I was young is true. It happened and it was painful, but very important. It's over, and that this is now true, and he can come and access the, the truth of. I don't have to worry about what the people in, out the back are going to say or do because I don't live there anymore or he doesn't live in there anymore. Let me let me pull again sure. that into the here and now is that you don't have to worry about the people listening to this. You can still stand with you in this place of feeling this anxiousness and tears and reach to you now in the same way that you're reaching to him there then wow. that you feel this anxiety. You said that you said you can feel it here mm. and you can see it there back then. And so how will you stand with yourself in both places? What a great invitation. I can just tell myself it doesn't matter. I just do. You know, if, if there is anybody listening to this, that, that thinks anything thinks anything about this that potentially is critical, that's fine. That's for them to think. This was this mm-hmm. was this this was me sitting down and having a podcast and this this arose and I followed the path I followed the energy, I followed the path and it led to this place. And what's in, what's really interesting is that second question you just asked me, which is how do I live with the fear of the judgments? Um, it was there then, and it's here now, and yes. both places need something. Yes, and, that, and and you know, talking talking about my younger self, I could get that. I could, that but again, just the, how you expanded it to go, and what about now? And what about the, the what you started with? Which is, I'm a bit nervous about talking about this. I'm a bit nervous yeah. about what people will say, and just go. So, what did you learn from meeting him? To help you now, and is that again back to that reciprocal experience that you're describing? That in me supporting him, I can learn something about me, and here it is, which is you can declare something here. I will not shrink away from myself and my human experience. Well, yeah, and I and that is a profound statement, and I think any human being repeating that statement out loud will find it profound. That the invitation is to be as big as we really are to big, be the biggest self. And, um, I will not shrink away from what? Will not shrink away from myself or my pain or my joy. I will be here for me. Mm. There we go. I will stand with myself as if I am acceptable and whole. I don't have to believe it. Mm. I will. It's a, I will Take it as a stance, as an action, and make choices from there. And so if we pull it out into the future, mm. when you're feeling anxious about something, you might just say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be here for me in the same way I was there for him right. back then as a little boy. Mm. And maybe I break a few rules, but that's okay. Because mm. I'm going to stand for something here. And as I think about this podcast and what you guys are, you know, doing, there's a values built right into it, right? Like you want to share knowledge that helps people. Mm. And what you just shared, I think 
matches that value. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's it, it's just it's no it's not even just a parent beside me. It's my, I have a big brother. I have a big brother in the future. I have a big brother beside me now. My future self has just come and says, "What odds, Leon? You know, so yeah. wow. And all of a sudden, I'm not anxious anymore. All of a sudden, I am. Yeah, I'm. 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 As I say, I'm back in the room. You know, it's a. It's it's like I'm back at, in the podcasting place where I'm going. Wow, thank you, Roman. Well, thank you for yeah. being willing to take that risk and put yourself out there. I, and if I can jump in, and often at the end of these role plays, we we expect we kind of start big picture. How was that for you? That kind of thing. But actually, Glenn, you just said something that I want to ask Robin a question about it's an act question that's been kind of, I've been waiting to ask somebody, I guess it. So I was, I was jotting down notes as you guys were talking and, and it was like, just before you said that Glenn, I said to myself, I thought there has been no discussion about reduction of anxiety. Robin, you, you've at no point did you say, "Is are you feeling better? Is your anxiety lowered?" Glenn, you just happened to notice that the anxiety is um, is less than it had been, or that it's not there and it's gone. You said, and it's 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 just been an ongoing question for me about acts because it's like it's not something that you guys expect an act practitioner will explicitly seek to reduce, but and I guess the way I've come to think of it as any emotional state, happiness getting better or getting more, more happiness, less anxiety, less fear. It's almost like they they happen as side effects as opposed to like the direct effect that it just, it does happen to be that Glenn feels better, but it wasn't like an explicit target for you as you were engaging in that conversation with him, Rob. Right. So I, I don't know. I just, just some thoughts there. And just very curious to hear what you're, your ideas are on that. Yeah, no, that's correct. That um, when we stop fighting our emotional experience, we lose the fight, right? So the intensity goes down. The tricky part about it is that sometimes people will then try to engage in acceptance as a means to feel better. And then acceptance becomes a control strategy. And it, and it, doesn't work the way people then when they feel bad again or anxious again they're like well how come it didn't stay gone i accepted it because uh, this isn't uh accepted it's accepting and something that uh glenn will have to engage in again and again and again and again right like emotions rise and fall and if we allow our experience what we'll see is the rise and then the fall if we fight our experience, we get stuck in the rise and we end up in that battle plus not wanting, you know, the battle of not wanting to feel. And we sort of have anxiety about our anxiety and fear about our fear. And we're inside of something where it's very hard for us to see the fall. Joy rises and falls. All emotions rise and fall. And when we get caught in our heads, we don't see it. And when we get caught in the fight, we don't create we the fall isn't allowed to happen and so it just looks like we're anxious all the time when that's not the case even like you think about uh, chronic pain somebody who has long-standing ongoing chronic pain if you look at it 
and like with observing eye what's happening it shifts and moves and you know rises and falls and disappears then comes back like it has a very interesting quality to it and but people miss it because they're not attending and so we want to people to tune in to their experience witnessing the fluidity like, if you think about how much motion is going on inside of us at any one point in time it's like trying to imagine the universe right like your blood is flowing there's um little mitochondria running around in cells mem- doing things that memorize stuff right like it's there's cells dying there's cells growing like there's a whole universe of movement within us and that's how it all works it's all in motion we just forget to look and so i want to create that place and we know this too by the way that if you're trying not to feel what we call negative if you're really trying to push that down and keep it away as human beings we're not very good at just saying i'll just keep the anxiety away like we can target one emotion and stay away from it that's not how it works if you are not willing to feel that you're gonna not you're gonna have to shut down at all the whole thing including joy And so, you know, people like who are really sad say, I never feel joyous because I don't want to feel the sadness. You have to open up to everything in order to get, allow the joy in as well, if that makes sense. And so, um, yes, people can feel better. But what I say to that is don't count on it. Not as a point of being a, 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 what's the right word, negative or something like that. But as a point of truth, as human beings, we are all going to encounter more pain in our lives, more losses, more places where we'll feel anxious. And so the question is, is when we come to those places, how will we meet ourselves? Not whether or not we will have them or not. And so, um, when I say don't count on it, I mean it in that sense is that until you die, you will be an experiencing being and they will range in nature. And if you think of emotions and thoughts and sensations as, you know, items on a menu, eat everything on the menu. Because <laughs> if you try not to eat some of it, then you won't taste a lot of what life has to offer and you'll struggle and suffer. Um, so, um, is that sort of get, mm. yeah. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, Glenn did want to, I do want to come back to you, check in and uh, you were offering kind of a narration sort of as, as you were going through that, but how are you feeling now about it? What do you, what are your thoughts? I'm, I'm continuing to process part of what happened to you, but also just listen to what how Robin was answering your last question and and understand it from the learning perspective but certainly in that in in the the real play you know because um it started off with this emotion anxiety and and I what I've written down was what struck me first of all was when I described the situation I was anxious about your reflection or your summary summary summation of it was so empathic and 
it added, um, you know, you talked about the abandonment, you talked about the ostracization, and just really captured something for that aspect of myself that that being seen part of it, and I think that's that's was the most powerful piece for the the understanding, which was being seen, being accepted, and you remaining calm and curious with a purpose. There was definitely a purpose to what you were doing. You seemed to, that part of me felt like you knew what you were up to. and But it was with his needs in mind. Yeah. And, and again, from an MI perspective, I can see the, the crossover between the two, which is, you know, the spirit of MI. But again, back to that piece at the end, when you just said to me about the anxiety about what, how people would judge me, haven't heard my, my real play. They hadn't, hadn't thought about it. Shh. But it was so useful for you to notice it to me because yeah. it meant then I can, I can step away from this experience now at peace within myself and go, I met that younger me, was able to do some reparation for him and... I'm all right. Powerful, powerful stuff. And I don't know how long how long we were talking, 10, 15 minutes maybe. But I can see how the, the, the speed and the depth of of being held, contained and understood. Um, and just that, that, on the learning part of it, that idea that, that, that we're constantly moving. I wonder if it's true then, is it, is it the self with the capital S is the ever-present constant that's, you know, I've studied philosophy and we talk about the idea that there's there's a self which is pure, perfect and complete, which is unmoved by anything. And it, 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 that's the observer of of this this living experience. And it's the ego and it's the it's the body that that we can we train or we invite ourselves to become, through our breath, to become aware of what is the self noticing. And it's, the, the the love and the compassion that has that it has for this body, for this mind, for this for this this ego, and that's the in many ways the relationship that we're working with us. Um, so, so yeah, I, I guess to answer your question, say, but it 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 was a there was a bit there was definitely a roller coaster. I I was nervous that I was going to, like when I felt the feelings I had coming in, I thought. This this could go away. This could go anyway, you know. Um, and particularly when we started talking about that jumpla, that is me. And then when I started to feel like I was going to cry, um, and just how well and how lovely, Robin, you were holding that part of me. That um, and I guess again, just back to that piece. Given the fact that I nearly that I was tearful a few times, that I'm now coming away from this process, going, it doesn't matter who heard me. In fact, what you said was potentially some people who heard me will find it useful, which is ultimately my my intention in doing the podcast at all. So hopefully some of you out there listening found Robin and I having a conversation of benefit to help you understand ACT, but also to understand your relationship with yourself, because I did definitely find it helpful for me. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for being willing. And I should say, like, it's like I feel nervous when I do these things too, right? Like it's not like I'm coming in and like peace and calm is all over me. It's just I, cause I'm inviting people to be vulnerable in the work. And so I have to be vulnerable too mm. yeah. and humble and humble about 
you know, people's experiences. And so I want to convey that as well. Mm. And I suppose there there will be people listening to this now going, okay, so this may have been their first time hearing and describing and experiencing something about ACT. If if they wanted to find out more, what might they do if if as, as a next step in becoming curious about ACT? What what might I do next? Well, so there's a fair amount written about ACT, and so you you could just you know search up acceptance and commitment therapy. You could see you can see things on um, books on Amazon. There's a several self help books. Um, you know. Uh, Steve Hayes has written Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life. Uh, so that's uh, one example. Although, um, uh, and there's another one that uh, comes out of the UK, actually. It's called My, I'm going to, can I send it to you guys? as Because I'm not going to, it's a, something about um, a, the little red book of acceptance and commitment therapy. I haven't got the name quite right. Um, and, uh, there's some great self-help books out there. Um, I just wrote one on moral injury and anger, not one on moral injury and one on anger, uh, how to use act in approaching those two particular things. Um, there's one that, um, Victoria Follette and Jacqueline Pistarello have, uh, written about, uh, trauma. And so there's some really great self-help work out there and some books that folks can read, podcasts. There's other that want to send people away, and you can feel free to cut this if you want. Not at all, not at all. This is all about learning, so we're we're happy to. We we listen to podcasts ourselves, so this is not a competition. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's other podcasts, and so there's lots of material if people just do some searching up on on the Internet. Fantastic. Yeah. Speaking well, speaking of the podcast, there, there's one, um, I don't know that it's still active, but, uh, it's called act in context. And, um, actually it was one of the first podcasts I ever listened to quite honestly. And actually if I would be perfectly honest and, and having my memory kind of snap into focus here, my experience listening to that podcast and how they presented, I can't remember the, the hosts, but uh, it actually led led to the idea of doing this podcast. Quite honestly, oh, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I I remember reaching out to Glenn on a long drive one day and said, "Hey, what what do you think about doing a podcast?" And uh, I was I was listening to the this act podcast. So interesting! It's a kind of full circle. Yeah. Um, There's another I, one called Psychologists Off the Clock that does a lot of podcasts on act as well. For if for folks who are, I mean, anybody can really listen to it. Um, that you can see that it's targeting psychologists, but um, they have a, a very broad audience that is beyond uh, psychologists, you know, lay people and other mental health providers. They've got some great stuff on there as well. So I, I know we're, we're, we're close to the end here in our time together. I, I, I had just have a couple other kind of getting back into discussion mode if, if I can. So and I, I think I, I can hold myself to two questions. So one, well, and as if I can also just 
reflect a bit on your use of MI adherent skills um, and sort of some of the concepts that you were you doing, Robin, there in, in that role play with Glenn. I, I think anyone could recognize your use of a reflective listening in addition to the occasional question that you would ask, and uh, which is, of course, not a surprise. Uh, reflectiveness listening is certainly not unique to MI by any means, but um, you can see the parallel there. There was that moment where you asked Glenn for permission to bring his younger self into the room, into the, into the zoom, I guess, as it were. Um, and that's also something that would be familiar to MI practitioners when, when, when exploring a sensitive subject or, you know, perhaps before we're giving some advice, we would uh, ask them for permission to, to offer that. So that was certainly um, something recognizable. But I, I guess the thing then that I was curious to hear you about talk about, Robin, is because uh, Miller and Rolnick, the two founders of MI, had at one point defined or a definition of MI uh, that they had used before was that it is both directive and client centered. And that and, and there's these like two seemingly opposing forces happening kind of concurrently. And um and I was curious what your, but more so from the directive part of it, from your standpoint, there were certain things that led you to say this or perhaps not say that, invited Glenn in at that moment. You offered that really powerful reflection at the end there about, you know, that Glenn can be okay, both as a, as a younger version of him, but then as the him now. And I guess what, what, what was it that you were tracking that led you to, say the things that you said and in, in, in that conversation. Yeah. So uh, tracking is a good uh, way to talk about it. In fact, is that some of the work that I'm doing when I'm um, in session like this is I'm paying very close attention to body language, what's being said. I want to, I'm hearing it in multiple levels and I could he- hear at an experiential level, that sense of um, being ostracized and uh, knowing it personally in other areas, and I can relate to it and sort of capture it in my presence, if that makes sense. Uh, and then um, he immediately shares with us that I'm having this anxiety about this experience, and it's been weighing on me. It's been capturing me is what Glenn says. It's like, my mind's been working on this. I'm, I'm anxious before we even get there. And so already I can hear, like, I don't want this inside of that. So like, you know, like, I, I don't want to come on a professional show and like maybe reveal something where people are going to be evaluating me negatively or ostracize me, do what was done. And there's a limiting quality to that, right? It sort of shuts down what Glenn is free to do, what, what Glenn's own liberation. And so I've got multiple points that I'm paying attention to there. Like what, what is he fused with? What is he avoiding? What is he not wanting? Um, What is he not seeing self as context? Um, You know, where is he living? Is he here now? Or is he there then? And he sort of, there then, but in the future, like, what are people going to think of me if they, when they hear this? Is it going to be okay if I cry? And the answer is yes, right? And so, and then what are your values? Like, I kind of landed in that place. And I would say Glenn did a committed action. 
today by just taking this risk and letting himself be vulnerable, which is a lot of what we're about anyway, right? Like is being vulnerable as a way to connect and care and um, know each other at a deeper level than uh, the sort of boxed off places. And so I'm attending to, you know, where, where are, where can I hear things in what he's saying that, are the opposite of open and aware. Not that Glenn is trying to do that, right? We all engage in those uh, behaviors of being careful and shut down or, or, or pulled away or afraid. And I think that was the word that Glenn used was that he was feeling fearful of um, what might happen during this role play. And uh, and emotion itself, maybe afraid of expressing emotion itself because the by no fault of Glenn's wasn't Glenn's fault back then, and it isn't his fault now. We have all these message about about what's okay to feel and show, and uh, rules that you know who made those. <laughs> Like we did, we made these rules and said, and it's especially challenging, I think, for men because there are stronger rules for men around what you can share emotionally in most cultures than um, than for women. And we've got, you know, we associate negative things with these emotions, which is really unfortunate. So I'm just attending to like, where are the places do I see Glenn sort of just being cautious or stepping away? And, and I am going to be a little bit more directive in that space and sort of see if what's happening fits right. And I didn't even have to ask Glenn if it resonated because he was like sharing like, yeah, this is it. This is where this makes sense to me. And um, I would say act as a much more directive therapy than a lot of other therapies, uh, like I'm in there and I'm working. I want to work just as hard as the person that's working across from me. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not the type of therapist who sits back in a chair and listens and, you know, simply reflects. I'm like, let's go after these things. Let's go see, let's do some work together and create something that is going to be useful. Yeah. To use a, a, a phrase that one of our, Mint colleagues who specialises in compassion. Talks, you're talking about compassion in action. You know, you're 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 there to do something of benefit for the other person, and you're prepared to put an effort into that. And it yeah. sounds like part of the effort. And what you're describing is what what was lovely when you described that. You know that experiential listening, the the, the hearing, the feeling. What was lovely with it was the way you described it was that you were able to identify perhaps your own experience of ostrac- being ostracized without be- without becoming that in this room. It sounds like in some ways you've visited that self before, you have an understanding of who she is, and you were able to use that experience in your reflection and your coming alongside of the ostracized me. That the effort yeah. that you had made with her meant that you could come and be go, oh, hi, Glenn. Hi. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. 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 And yeah. for, and, and that acceptance of, you know, I can, I can see you because you've already said hello to that part of yourself. And that, that's a lovely way, you know, expanding my understanding of how I, I can ex- teach people the idea of that empathic listening of the experience that, that somehow that you will recognize it in yourself, but it's, it's how then to use that experience, that wisdom, that, 
that he lean to them support this other person with it by not become yeah. by not getting involved in it by not being it just going ah I recognize this yeah this is unattached what, I would yeah, say there we go yes yeah. so that um, yeah it, for the service in the service of values based living right it's not pain for pain's sake so would you be willing to feel this to create meaning and purpose in your life. That sounds so important. I'm going to get you to say that again. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, would you be willing to feel what you feel in the service of values-based living to create personal meaning and purpose? Because we all, we're all going to die, right? Like it's coming that our personal end is on its way at some point. Mm. And we have such precious little time here on earth, relatively speaking. And so the invitation is rather than battling with yourself to get rid of the anxiety so that you can then live, right? Just the clock is ticking, you know, let me open up to my experience and then do things that bring meaning to me. And that when I get to the end of my life, I look back and I said, I, I did those things that mattered because you can look back and say, I was afraid. And so I didn't do the things that mattered. Mm. Or you can look back and say, I just brought my fear with me and I created something that had meaning and purpose in it. And uh, that's our sort of ultimate goal. Mm. Wow. And given the time that we have, and no doubt, in fact, there's one more question. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. It's been on an early list that I wrote. So uh, one more. I, I um, So am I one of the things that there's, it seems like there's growing evidence in, in, in uh, from a research standpoint is the use of MI in conjunction with another approach. And so you could think of, uh, you know, an, a motivational interviewing session as a precursor to uh enrolling in a intensive outpatient program that may also have MI kind of embedded in with that program. Right. But sort of enhancing someone's motivation for something. And now they receive another intervention or treatment or whatever it might be. Uh, I remember Bill Miller once talking about the blending of MI and ACT. I'm sorry, MI and cognitive behavioral therapy. And he identified the, like a, a place where, an MI practitioner could explore uh, when doing CBT is uh, the, the, I guess the increasing their motivation to engage in that cognitive restructuring process and sort of thinking, uh, ch- challenging their thinking and, and not, not always sort of, you know, well, not, not to go into a CBT direction, right? But but that's something I do. I remember Bill Miller saying that, and I found that really interesting. So I was just wondering, from your standpoint, Robin, is there, and whether it's like formally doing MI, or if you can speak to the, the, the work that you do to build someone's motivation to even consider, because this is a real risk, as you said, and there is a motivational challenge at work here, for someone who's coming into your office saying, Hey, get rid of this. And you're saying, no, actually what I'm, what I want to help you with is to live with the thing that you want to get rid of it. I guess I just, if you could speak a bit to how you address that motivational challenge and, and perhaps even it as a, the idea of MI as a 
precursor to doing ACT. I absolutely think MI could be a precursor to doing ACT. Uh, I think it, it nicely sort of prepares people for this space of, you know, noticing their own ambivalence and me making some choices, right? Like that's sort of the key thing is making some um, picking to make something different. In terms, I, I tend to think of motivation in kind of an interesting way because uh, people often link it up to, I have to have a feeling of wanting to do something. And if you look at act from sort of a, a you know, philosophical and theoretical perspective, we're not trying to eliminate emotional experiences. And we're also not trying to create what's not there. Like we would say, you can't just go fall in love because you're motivated to fall in love, right? If I paid you, Sebastian, you know, a million dollars to fall in love with the next person you see, you might be highly motivated, but would it be love? You see what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, and so motivation is kind of an interesting uh, idea for me. And the way I tend to think of it is that it follows behavior, that you do something first and then you are more likely to do it again. Like it's a probability. And so um, if people are waiting to feel motivated, then they can be waiting for a long time if they're waiting for a feeling of motivation. Mm. And so I want to try like, well, what if you just tried something and let's see what follows. Let's see what happens behind that behavioral action. And they still have to choose that behavioral action though, right? So there's still that point of choice. They'll be ambivalent about it. They'll recognize those that they're not choosing it. Let's just invite them to do one little thing that's about the change that they seek. And let's watch what follows it mm. rather than you need to feel the motivation first in order to do it. Does, does that, uh, I think that's sort of the way I would, that's the way I would address it in therapy. Wonderful. Yeah, no, thank you uh, for for sharing your thoughts on that. Mm. Interesting idea, the, the idea of motivation following uh, behavior. Uh, that's, yeah, it offers a different perspective on it for sure. You can see it in some weight loss, like people will change their behavior a slight bit and they'll lose a pound or two. And then it's like, oh, maybe I can do a little bit more, right? Like they see the change and their motivation will inch up. And then if they lose more, their motivation will inch up, right? So it's when I exercise, when I like, and when I go to exercise, for instance, let me tell you, I have no motivation. <laughs> a lot of the time I'm tired. I want to go to bed. I don't feel like it. Right. And if those were all in charge, I would never exercise. Mm. But when I go and start exercising, then I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I'm doing this. And you know, like the motivation follows the behavior. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I think there's a chorus of people across the world going, yeah, I get that. I know that feeling. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I don't want to go to the gym. I don't um, want to do it. Yes, and then they yes. go and then they, they're glad they did, right? Like right. the, yes. it follows. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so at, at, at this point, as we come to close in, Robin, there's there's two questions we very often ask our guests. First one is, is other than work, what else is perhaps going on for you that, that that's capturing your interest that we could have a chat with you for, for a minute or two? Well, um, 
there's I guess there's a couple things. Uh, one is that I'm a big dog fan, which you guys know I introduced you to my uh, three uh, dogs before we started today. And uh, I love being out in nature with my dogs. And so anything that um, I can be in the sun and, uh, you know, smelling the fresh air and that kind of thing is really important to me and uh, which uh, has led me to some of the interests that I have, which are about being involved in doing what I can to reduce uh, climate change or impact climate change. So uh, I'm on a, a group inside ACBS that's actually working on different ways to think about how to get people to change their behavior with respect to how we live um, with um, uh, facing such a, a difficult future with too much heat, not enough water, uh, those kinds of things. And so I'm spending a fair bit of time in that territory mm. thinking about how we can create behavior change there. Wonderful. And you actually mentioned a group uh, called the ACBS. And that's actually something that, you know, to Glenn's question about how, how our listeners might seek out more information and training and that sort of thing. Could you talk a bit about the ACBS, Robin, tell, tell the audience what, what it stands for and, 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 you know, just say more about that. You bet. So ACBS is the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, and it is the association that houses acceptance and commitment therapy. And so this is where you'll find most of that work. Their website, ACBS or contextualscience.org, has a lot of materials on it where people that are free that people can read and download and look at. Um, anyone can become a member. Uh, we have it's a largely a mental health provider organization, but we have uh, coaches and other professionals. We have, I, I think there's a surgeon or two, like there's a, an interesting variety of people inside of ACBS. And so essentially what we're looking at is ways to improve humans' lives to address suffering by using the contextual behavioral sciences, seeing human beings as beings in a context with a learning history. And how can we continue to learn and change our behavior in ways that are helpful to us and effective for what we'd like? So everything makes sense if you understand the context and the data. Wow, fantastic. Yeah. And, yeah. and again, I've no doubt that there are many people who are going to be as enthused by your conversation today as we are. And and for that reason, I'm wondering if people want to reach out to you after hearing your episode, Robin, would they be would you be willing to accept those queries? And if they are, how can they contact you? Absolutely. I have a website which just so people know it's about to shift from an old one that I built like 10 years ago and I built it. So there's nothing impressive about it to a new website. So if you see the change, it's still me, uh, but the, and the name will stay the same and it's TL consultation services.com. T is in Tom L is in lovely consultation services.com stands for trauma and life psychology and consultation services. And I, there's contact information inside the website. So then go to the website and contact me that way. Fantastic. 
That's I'm also I'm also on Twitter and um, I have a Facebook page called The Heart of Act. If people want to take a poke around and the heart and look of at those Act as well. And your Twitter handle is uh, just Robin Walser. W a l s e r. Uh huh. S e r. Robin with Robin. a y. Robin with yeah. a y. Robin with a y. Fantastic. Yeah. Excellent. So, Robin, thank you very much. And, and just as you mentioned, Twitter, there are different ways you can stay in touch with with ourselves. On Twitter, it's at Change Talking. On, on our Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. Our Facebook page is Talking to Change. And for questions about future episodes or trainings or suggestions, uh, you can email us at podcast at glenhines.com. Well, Robin, this was a real, real pleasure. We're so happy that you joined us. Uh, and this is, it just left so many wonderful directions to think about and future directions to learn, hopefully. So thank you so much for, for sharing your, your time and wisdom with us. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. It was fun. Thanks, Robin. Bye, everybody. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, Seb.